Well, good morning. Welcome to everyone that is here with us in the main auditorium. To those who are in the fellowship hall and watching online, good morning to you. What a joy and privilege it is to be together uh, this morning. And it is a joy and a privilege to do this, to gather together, to sing, to pray, to hear the word. <clears throat> Excuse me. God has set up something incredibly helpful and beneficial to us as our heads and hearts are focused on Him. We get to take some time today in Exodus, in our series in Exodus, to really draw out what it is that God has given to us in our gathering together, in devoting our lives to Him, and singing the song we just sang before I came up here, singing those words but meaning them in our hearts. What a privilege that we have. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus 35, we're going to consider the scope of verses 1 through 29, but right now I'm going to read 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days shall be done. Work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, Let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman Among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Let's pray. God, as we consider this together this morning, we pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to see here in your word, uh, words of life, that it would direct our hearts to you, and that we would be eager to live our lives for your glory. So would you do a good work in our hearts? We come in here, maybe we come this morning distracted or discouraged. And so, God, would you do that necessary and encouraging work in us? Maybe we come tired or weary, and and so, God, would you strengthen us? Maybe we come hopeful and expecting, oh, God, would would you just continue to lead our hearts? God, we pray this all to your glory and to our good. In Christ's name, amen. If there's any misalignment, even the slightest of ones, things don't work as they should. Take your back for an example. If there is a slight misalignment, everything hurts. Simple things like making the bed or putting away groceries can bring very acute pain. One time while I was trying to put the fitted sheet on the bed, I sneezed. And that was the worst possible thing ever, as I face plant into the bed 
with a back going seven different directions. And if you ever needed any evidence that God cursed the ground because of Adam in the Garden of Eden, the fitted sheet is an example of that. It doesn't make much to throw everything out of whack. The same could be said of our spiritual vitality and health. It doesn't take much to throw it off. The slightest misalignment, and you and I were a mess. We're a mess. Good thing God knows how to align our lives. Good thing God cares enough about us to guide us back and to show us what it is that He has designed and how not only is it for His glory, but guess what? It's for your good, for our good. What God has set up for His people is for our good. My hope is as we consider this passage together where we are in Exodus in a series titled Delivered to Dwell, that we would better understand what it means to dwell, that we would see that having a God-centered life that makes much of Him is spiritual alignment, is spiritual health, and that we would want to be devoted to that, that we would want to be serious about that, that we wouldn't want to take that lightly because this is God's design and what He gives is our good. So hopefully we're encouraged in this way. Because what we find in Exodus 35 is a focus on being devoted to God. And being devoted to God means we live in these two ways. This is very important for us because this plays out in the pages of Scripture. It's, it's especially true in light of all that Jesus is and has done for us and who we are in Him. But if we want to live devoted to God kind of lives, if we want to be serious about that, honest about that, eager for it, then we need to see that we are to live a God-centered life. A God-centered life, a life centered around who God is, what He has done, what that makes us, and how we then shall live. But a God-centered life, and that God-centered life is secondly for us, is for God's glory, for the glory of God, that If we want to be devoted to God, that we are going to live a God-centered life for the glory of God. We're going to work through Exodus 35 to unpack that. First is this, a God-centered life. Look again with me at verses 1 through 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days. Work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath, a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Serious words. Serious focus. Serious call. Take God seriously. Yes, with great joy, but take God seriously. Here we are yet again in Exodus, revisiting the Sabbath. A few weeks back, we ran into it again, yet again. We heard in the Ten Commandments, obviously the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. And and as God has given instructions to His people in, in terms of building the place where they would gather with God and worship Him, the Sabbath has been brought back to their attention again and again and again. And here we are once again. Now, sort of a quick reminder, the Sabbath, we've said, going all the way back to Exodus 20, 
was an ordering your life around God kind of commandment. It represented an ordered life that's centered on God in rest, worship, and glory. That it was about a rhythm of life that reflects our meaning and purpose in life. That is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Those first four commandments, if you recall, we kind of gave one word for each one to make a little expression. Only real, true worship. Only God, only, no other gods. Real, real, not idols, not something made, but real, not and, and, and true, not fake or vain, like taking the Lord's name in vain. And then lastly, fourthly, worship. That our very lives would be ordered and have a rhythm around who God is. God cares about that for you. He's not sim- simply self-seeking. It's actually for your good. It is to your good that your life would be ordered around only real true worship. Now, when we get to the Sabbath, we hadn't set aside a a time in any of the messages just squarely focused on that, but here's a good spot. They're getting ready to build all that God told them to build. If you recall, we had many chapters laying out that direction, and they're about to start that work, and yet again, they're reminded that your life around me, to the rhythm of your life around me. So let's take a moment to think about how important it is, this thing called the Sabbath, this day of solemn rest, holy to the Lord, this, this day of, of rest and of worship and of enjoying God, what God has done in establishing this for His people. There are four stages of the Sabbath, four ways in which we have sort of an interaction with it or an understanding of it in the way that then it impacts and and we experience it in our lives. And it's very important to understand these things because we've gotten the Sabbath wrong in many different kinds of ways. So let's take a moment and think through these stages, and then let's make some application points to our own hearts. Stage one is the creation stage. What we find in, is that the Sabbath isn't instituted in Exodus 20. It's actually started all the way back at creation. It's rooted in creation. So that Exodus 20 is really echoing the Garden of Eden. It's really echoing what God started at the beginning. God worked six days and rested, and so mankind was to follow that pattern. It was, a bit, it was to be a day reflecting on the beauty and wonder of God and all that He had made, and then a day of giving Him thanks and glory for it. Started in creation. That's phase one, or stage one, if you will. But then something terrible happened, and that's the introduction of sin. Sin wrecks everything. It wrecks everything. It it wrecks our understanding of our purpose and our meaning. It wrecks our willingness and ability to live out the way that God would have us to live. Wrecks it all. And so that leads us into this next stage of understanding the Sabbath, and that's actually in the stage of redemption. In the stage of redemption, that's very important because here we find in Exodus that understanding the Sabbath is a response of a redeemed and rescued people. Even in Exodus 20, which we immediately think of as the Ten Commandments, 
These are laws. These are things that we're supposed to do. It actually comes in the context of redemption. The law begins with this reminder. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't forget that. Now these Ten Commandments, these ten words, and then all these extra instructions I'm going to give to you on what it means to be my people, all of that comes to you in the context of redemption. So your living out this life is in response to being rescued. Keeping the Sabbath then was the worship-filled response of a redeemed people. We've certainly inundated it with lots of do's and don'ts and checklists. Or we don't see its significance or importance. It's just another day. Here it is something supremely important to God. It's rooted in creation and it's available to us in redemption. And creation is pointing us forward and redemption is prefiguring or showing how this is going to come about in our lives in an incredible way, which leads us then to the third stage of understanding the Sabbath, and that is resurrection. There's creation, there's redemption, and then something, everything actually changes because of resurrection, because death doesn't win, because sin has been defeated. Resurrection says there's something incredibly new transformed about our understanding of our meaning and our purpose and our experience of living out our lives devoted to God. That our, in light of resurrection, it's all reordered to reflect Jesus. Resurrection changed our vantage point. All that creation was pointing forward to, all that redemption spoke of, it's now here because Jesus isn't dead He is alive. Jesus, in light of his resurrection, rested from his saving work and now calls to sinners such as you and I, come and rest. Come, you heavy laden, and rest in me. The resurrection changes everything. This is a new reality. Sin and death and Satan are defeated foes. So much new that in the New Testament, the church, the people of God, the rescued, redeemed people of God, flip the script on their week. No longer is it ending in rest, but the week now starts with rest because Jesus has already won. So this Sabbath day is now the Lord's day, and it's the beginning of the week. You start in rest, because Jesus is already victorious over it all. 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 20, Revelation 1, they all communicate to us this new reality brought on by Christ. We're no longer looking forward to what this rest is about. We are now actually living in light of it. It's incredible. God wants us to be devoted to Him. He wants our heads, our hearts, our very lives to be centered on Him and experience from Him all of the benefits of His saving ways 
and giving to him glory, and he's made this way through Christ that we can rest. Now, there's a fourth stage. We actually live in the tension of an already and a not yet. We live in the tension of the already reality of resurrection, but, but we're not quite all the way there in the fullness of that experience. Because you and I, we all know that sin still exists, its presence is still here, and that one day there will be a glorious return of our King Jesus, our resurrected, reigning, ruling, one day returning King, who will bring an end to it all and enter into this forever rest. We know that there is a full, final, forever rest yet to come, yet to be realized. And creation and redemption and resurrection all point us to it. And all of this, those four stages, all say to us that this thing called the Sabbath matters for our lives right now. In that we are to live a life centered on God. Centered on Him that our lives would be continually being reordered and refueled to live as if God really is ultimate. God still cares that our lives would be reordered to Him. God still cares that our lives would be refueled by His glory and grace. Making Sundays a debate about do's and don'ts misses the point here. This day that God has for us, this day of celebrating the rest that we have in Christ, this day that the saving work is done, and now the joy of basking in it is ours because of Jesus, this day should be a significantly profound day that helps us reorder our perspective on life and refuel our hearts in the midst of even hardest of lives no matter what it is that we face. Because we know all of those things that we face have a terminal end to them. But the joy that we have because of Jesus has no end date. And because of that, we can have lives that are reshaped to the God who has brought us into His joy and glory forever. And from that, we have joy from that we have fuel, strength to live out our lives centered to Him. I don't know if you look at this day in that way. Eager to gather, eager to sing, either eager to pray, eager to hear the Word, eager to fellowship with one another, eager to do this stuff together. I don't know if you come in expecting and hopeful and, and, and even if you're wearied and, and threadbare coming and gathering and knowing that God cares for you and calls you to this and that we should not be busying ourselves with stuff that's not God and not what he's provided for us in Christ, but in fact, we should be all the more eager to set our heads, our hearts, our affections on him because he's worth it because <laughs> he's the best because there's nothing better. No experience that you'll have in this life will be better than the joy of knowing God and being known by Him. So instead of drudgery and boringness, 
What if, what if your heart was eager and hopeful? Gathering. Setting your life ordered and refueled. Sinclair Ferguson, in a book entitled Devoted to God, he said this about this very point. The problem here is not how we spend our Sunday. It's how we are using our Monday to Saturday. Use Sunday as a day of rest, worship, fellowship first, and we will almost inevitably begin to discipline our use of time in the other six days of the week. Grasp this, and the Sabbath principle becomes one of the simplest, most helpful of all God's gifts. The burden-free day at the beginning of the week both regulates the days that follow and refreshes us for them. Rather than crashing into a Sunday morning on empty, barely eager to be here, already dreading that tomorrow is Monday, what if Sunday was the start? What if this was like, oh, I get to kick off my week in celebration of victory? <laughs> okay, let's go. How would that change the way you see Monday at whatever time you get up? God cares for us and has called us to order our lives around him. And in Exodus, as we've been moving through this book, we keep finding him bringing their attention back to the Sabbath thing. Reorder your life around God. Have a rhythm that says he's ultimate and most important in you. And then from that, we are to then live for the glory of God. That we are to live for the glory of God. And let's refresh where this transitions into next, verses 4 through 10. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, purple, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Here we find that the people are called to devote things to God and the building of the tabernacle, the place of the, the worship of God, the dwelling of God with people, rescued, redeemed people. They were to bring and devote these things to the making much of God. And there are three aspects of this that we need to see and understand. There's the what that is devoted. There is the how it is devoted and in this section, there is the who is doing the devoting. The what and the how and the who. First, what is devoted? Well, in our verses that we just read in 4 through 10, we read a list of goods and blessings that the people of God received during their exodus. So if you remember, they were in slavery for 400 years, and they left with the promise that God would give them immeasurable blessings on the way out of Egypt, and they, in a sense, plundered Egypt on the way out, and they left with all these things, these awesome things, this incredible 
sort of charter of blessings and, and goods. And just a few chapters back, if you recall, they took some of those things and they fashioned idols with them. And now God is calling them to give from their blessings all the resources needed to make the place where he and people would dwell together. They are essentially giving out of what they have received from their gracious and merciful God. The things that could have easily been hoarded or misused are now called to be devoted to God for his glory. Well, this preaches to us today because our very rescued, redeemed lives, who we are, where and when we are, are to be devoted to making much of who God is, His worth, His rescuing ways. That we don't just go through the motions of church, but that we center our lives around God, but then go about making much of Him because He's worth it, and we're willing to give out of what we have received because God is that amazing. What if that culture dominated the way that we interacted together in worship, in community, and on mission in this Nashua area? What if that informed and shaped and fueled our approach to life together as church? What if we gathered and through worship were committed together to delight in making much of God in His grace to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what if we were eager together in community, intentionally in each other's lives, not just for a series of small talk conversations and then off we go to the rest of our day because it's sunny and warm and there are only like seven of those Sundays in New England and so we need to hurry up, preacher. But what if we pressed beyond the small talk and got into each other's lives in meaningful ways because we wanted each other to see how awesome God is and how worth it is He is to, to live lives centered to Him and, and, and grow at knowing Him and making Him known? What if that infueled our community in, in, in an intentional way that the culture of our church was so eager to press in and know God and make Him known? What if that impacted our view of mission? What if we realized that we are in one of the most post-Christian contexts in all of the United States, that there are 53 municipalities in New Hampshire alone that do not have a gospel-preaching church in their, in their boundaries? What if that compelled our hearts all the more? to want to see the gospel go forward? Or what if we looked around our church and said, and I want to devote my life to helping it be easy for younger people than me to come here and feel like they're loved and they belong. What if that informed us, if we were willing to devote our lives, to set aside our lives, our places of leadership even, and, and influence to say, we want to see younger people who are, who are not interested in spiritual things, or at least gospel things, come and find that here. What if we're willing to die to ourselves in order to see them live in Christ? Would we do that? Would we devote ourselves in such a way? We would if we see the immeasurable worth of God. We wouldn't consider that a sacrifice at all. They gave 
from what they have received. What we give from what we have received, we've received life from God and Christ. Will we give our lives to the making much of him? That is what was devoted. But how did it get devoted? It's important for us to see the how also. Six times in verses 4 through 29, the emphasis is placed from the heart. They were to give from the heart. And it was attributed that those who gave, gave from the heart. We find it in verse 5. We find it twice in verse 21. We find it again in 22, verse 26, verse 29. And look at verse 29, sort of a summary statement of this whole block. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. How was it devoted? It was devoted on purpose and with great joy. That's how it was devoted. On purpose and with great joy. Not out of dead duty, not out of rote religion, but from a heart so moved and so stirred by who God is and how amazing He is and at what He has done for rescued, redeemed people. Their devoting was the overflow of joyful worship. And it's not sacrificial when it's coming from a joy-flooded heart responding to a God of all grace and mercy and worship. It only seems sacrificial from the viewpoint of the Stuff that is given. Never sacrificial when seen from the place of joyful worship. New Testament follows this theme. It's throughout all the Bible, but we find it again in, in the New Testament when given instructions about how we are to give. Speaking of our resources, sure, but I'm thinking of our whole lives how we give our lives and serve and worship and community and mission. How do we give? Well, 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his where? Heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver on purpose and with great joy. That's how this is devoted. How are we going to be a church devoted to God? Are we going to do that because we feel obligated to do that? Are we going to do that because it's simply the right thing to do? Are we going to do that on purpose and with great joy because of how amazing God's grace is and it never ceases to be amazing? That's what we are to devote. That's how we're devoted. But who? Who are the ones doing all this devoting? There's a striking picture of who. As you read through this chapter, you find a section describing the men who gave. You find a section describing women who gave. You find a section describing the leaders who gave. Men, women, leaders are all described separately and succinctly. 
from all the people, we see devotion to God from the heart. But it's that list that is very important for us right now. And what's striking is the inclusion and description of the women. Note verse 22. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. Verse 25. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. Verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. What does this tell us? Well, one, women were a priority to God. In the ancient Near Eastern culture and world in this day and age that we are in, in Exodus, that was not the thing that was happening across all of the surrounding cultures. Women weren't treated in that way, weren't esteemed and held up like they are here in Exodus. This is the overflow of God's care. It's the overflow of His purpose. Women were a priority to God. Secondly, what God does through His redeeming work cannot be boxed in by any cultural value or tradition or structure or system. God's grace and His mercy bursts through the seams of cultural standards and systems. Cannot box God in. Yes, I will esteem you, women, God says. And then thirdly, what does this tell us? Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can be redeemed. Anyone can live joy-filled, devoted lives to God. Anyone. The grace and mercy and rescuing work of God seeped all the way down to those who would have been easily overlooked and forgotten, not esteemed, not valued. And there they are, bringing their stuff and their skill and their time, and their hearts to make much of God. Anyone can get on this. That means you. Yes, you. That means you. Your life is of incredible worth to God. You're not too nobody. You're not too insignificant. You're not too inconsequential. Did you notice earlier, they brought everything and anything to be devoted to the Lord. You are able to do that. God has placed immeasurable worth on you. You can get in on this joy-filled, redeemed lives devoted to God. Your life has worth, it has meaning, it has purpose, and the greatest joy will be found when centered to God. And living for his glory. Perhaps your weeks are misaligned and you feel spiritually malnourished and weak. I say to you, center your heart on God. Look to him.
grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And devote to him your affection. Live your life making much of his glory and grace. And then see how healthy that makes you. May that happen again and again in our church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we find in it instruction and guidance for how we live, but really it, it leads us to you. We find how you bring us back to you. You are worth it. You have all that we need. Help our distractedness be settled in you. Strengthen our weariness to live for your glory. God, give us joy. Even in the midst of hard, give us joy in knowing that you're worth this. And God, may that be so contagious and infectious in our church that it changes and improves and strengthens and transforms our culture. That is that it would become inviting and encouraging for each of us and for others to come to know you, to have joy in you, and to make much of you. God, may that be so. May we all, may we all be devoted to you with our lives. Help us in this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.